Hi, and welcome back to another episode of First Time Outdoors. Um, we have a guest with us today, a good friend of mine, Grant Armour, who is the Recreation Program Specialist with uh, Three Rivers Park District. And uh, we're going to have a conversation today about um, getting people excited about spending time in the outdoors and various um, activities. Um, a lot of the podcasts that we've done so far, we've, we've focused a lot on hunting and fishing and things like that. You can expect in this podcast to hear more things about like uh, paddling and climbing and, and uh, mountain, biking. mountain biking. So we're going to... We're going to kind of shift our focus into that a little bit. So uh, thanks for joining us and stay tuned. Cool. Yeah, welcome, Grant. Um, Why don't you just kind of give us a little background about what you do at Three Rivers Park District, where you're coming from, and, and uh, what your role is, I guess. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, guys. I've really uh, been a fan of the podcast since you started making it. And I, so my job at Three Rivers is uh, basically half my time I'm outdoors teaching outdoor activities. The other half of the time I'm in the office doing coordination work. So I'm making sure our curriculum is set up right. I'm making sure our equipment is put together. Um, but the part that I'm really passionate about is the teaching part. Um, I get to go outside, teach primarily introductory skills um, to the general population. Three Rivers is in the West Metro. So we're basically uh, the Western suburbs of Minneapolis. We've got 27,000 acres of land across 24 different parks and hit 12.5 million park users a year. So Whoa. it's massive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what I get to do is just teach those first time experiences. And for me, that is a blast. And when Mike told me that he was starting a podcast called First Time Outdoors, I was like, ooh, that <laughs> is my thing. <laughs> um, so yeah. I, I basically, I mean, throughout the course of the year, mostly silent sports, but really teaching um, biking, rock climbing, uh, cross-country skiing, snowshoeing. I teach some fishing. It's not my strong suit. I've learned most of my fishing skills from Mike, actually. Um, <laughs> we all keep, have. <laughs> keep, keep trying, but, you know. Um, I do a lot of kayaking, stand-up paddleboarding, canoeing. Um, we've got a total of 35 different things we teach throughout the course of the year, and between teaching them at 24 parks uh, to kids, adults, the public, private groups, I've, no two days of mine are really the same. Wow. So. It's hard to wrap it up in a tight bow, but that's the best that's I can amazing. do. What are silent sports? Silent sports are really things that don't use motors and are out in nature. Um, okay. So they are awesome things like cross-country skiing, like snowshoeing, where really the only sounds you're making are the way that you're interacting with that environment. Um, a mm. hike is a silent sport. Yeah, you're going to hear the leaves and sticks crunching underneath your feet, but it is that intimate connection um, with that space um, that makes it what it is. Fishing is definitely a silent sport. Most people would argue that gun hunting is not, but mm -hmm. bow hunting is. Okay. Cool. I've never heard that before. I like that. Yeah, I like that too. Kind of describes what I what I like about the sports that I choose, like in the outdoors. Yeah. Is the quietness. Yeah. Because I, mean, I don't I don't have a big gun hunter other than like if I'm hunting upland with a shotgun, but yeah, like bow hunting and we talked about fly fishing the other day and and uh, hiking and just all those kind of. Fishing, for example, I, I like it to be quiet. Right. And, you know, and just being in the environment and being in your own head and enjoying the sounds of nature and not being a, a, a huge, what's the word I'm looking for? 
Like a disturbance. A disturbance, yeah. 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 And that, for us at Three Rivers, that really comes back to the core of our mission. So we use outdoor education and recreation to promote environmental stewardship. And that combination really means that we're focused on silent sports. We're focused on getting people out there. And for me, like, that's my personal mission as well. Just this last weekend, I went up to Bayfield, Wisconsin, had a super fun trip. As we were driving up, it was a snowstorm. There were snowmobiles blasting around the, all on the side of the highway. Uh, and my travel companion and I were like, maybe we should rent some snowmobiles. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then by the time we got into things, we are like, actually, the silence of a fresh snowy forest sounds way better. And yeah. so we went skiing and snowshoeing uh, and left the snowmobiles for other folks. It's interesting you said that because um, my, my dad's side of the family... The guys do a snowmobile trip in the in the winter, obviously, in the February, and uh, we go th- central Minnesota and we we ride like the most beautiful trails. And last year it got to be like a race, you know. Everyone's like, "Let's go fast!" And uh, my dad was driving this old plugger snowmobile and was like 15 miles behind us. <laughs> but we, <clears throat> my dad made the joke. It's like, did anybody see that owl? in the tree right you know it's right. like everybody's just so focused they're like whipping around corners and stuff and you don't like stop to actually look at how cool this environment is and that was one of the things that it was lacking in that experience it was great for all sorts of other reasons but if you're gonna try to do that and like appreciate like how pristine and like i want to see some deer and things like that a snowmobile is probably not your uh your method of achieving that well, and for me, there's just like, there's, there's the restorative contemplative space that nature is. And, and that for me is a huge part of the value of outdoor spaces yeah. and what I love sharing with other folks. Um, and one of my favorite ways to do that is I'll get a group of kids, we'll be out paddling, uh, and they're having fun, they're splashing, they're having a great time. And one of the things that is, for me is really important for kids is to have silence. It's not something kids get very often. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, we live in a really stimulating world, and it's fun to live in this stimulating world, but at the same time, how often do we take moments when we are on water or in nature to, to just breathe and be? And so every time you'll see me out with a group of kids, kayaking, canoeing, whatever it may be, even if I've only got 45 minutes to teach a kid how a canoe works, how to get in, how to get out, do a couple of basic paddle strokes, once we're out on that water, our whole group's going to get together. We're going to gunnel up all the boats right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're just going to have a minute of silence. And for me, I don't care what the kids are doing with that space. You can be reflecting. You can be thinking about something you've learned. For some kids, they want to pray in that space. But what it is, is it's just a moment to be. And there's a kid who's going to have his hand just sitting right on the top of the water, feeling that water tension. Mm-hmm. And there's some kid who can't sit still and he's twirling his pal around in the air, dripping water on his face. But everyone's getting something out of that moment. And for me, that is what I love about those introductory outdoor experiences. The skills are awesome, and I love teaching the skills because then people go do it again on their own. Um, but I also want people to see the emotional value of the spaces that I think you guys and I all hold really dear and near. I love that. So are you dealing primarily with kids? What's the age groups? Oh, it's all over the place. I would say probably two-thirds between half and two-thirds of the people I work with are kids, um, but I've worked with participants as old as in their 80s. I've worked with kids as young as three. Um, a lot of younger kids in the summer months, school groups, so middle school mostly, and high school in the fall. Um, the winter gets to be a lot more variable, um, but I offer public lessons that are really for anyone. Um, it just kind of, whatever your interest is, we've got something out there. And are, are they really um, 
forgive my ignorance, but are they facilitated through like a sign up course? Are they like you go to the, one of the parks and you can get involved that day? Uh, how does it typically yeah, play out? That's a great question. Um, so for the most part, our programs are pre-registration programs. The best way to get registered for them is via our website or calling the phone number. It's just threeriversparks.org. Um, and it is... Um, Pre-registration is definitely the easiest way. We do have some programs that are drop-in programs, but we've got waivers and there's a whole bunch of pieces that make day of registration a little bit tricky for us. Um, but yeah, hop on the website, check stuff out if you're interested. Um, we also do send out a quarterly, essentially newsletter newspaper that's got all of our programs for each upcoming season offered. Um, just today, summer camp registrations opened, which mm. it's crazy to me that some like registration yeah, yeah. start in January. Um, we had, uh, you'll be happy to know, Mike, our extreme fishing camps, two of them filled within the first minute. Extreme? Uh, extreme fish, yeah. Uh, they're, <laughs> wow. they're, they're a pretty sweet camp. And then we had three other sections of it fill, uh, but in the second minute, the registration were open. So Whoa, it is awesome. one of our most popular camps fills almost right away every time. Um, but yeah, we've got camps that focus on fishing, camps that focus on paddling. Um, the Most of them are going to be day camps, half day or full day. Um, and then that's really a lot of what we're doing in the summer is offering those camps, getting kids excited and interested in the outdoors. Um, but we've also got tons of public programs. So if you want to come out and learn how to kayak, we do a three-hour intro to Flatwater Essentials where you're going to learn how to be safe, what to pay attention to, some good form for your paddle strokes, um, and the real basics to be able to go, get back out there on your own. I love that. Um, cool. Well, why don't we... Or go ahead, Mike. I just have a question about, are these free programs or are they... Are there like cost money and are there like scholarship things yeah. or like grants that people can apply for or totally so we've got there's a handful of programs we offer for free um, and we've got some that are super exciting um, depending on the timing of production there might even be one this coming weekend um, there's a try it ice fishing event that's at the end of January here um, that's a free just come out and do it event um, and what's then, the date of that that's January 26th this coming Saturday <laughs> or is it the 25th Oh, I should know that one better. <laughs> uh, and it's this coming Saturday. Um, and we also have a lot of programs that we, we try to keep the prices down on them. Our goal is to educate people to make the outdoors accessible. We're a public agency. Our goal is to connect people with their parks. Um, the fees that we charge are really just to cover our expenses. We need boats. We need bows. We need arrows. We lose a lot of arrows. <laughs> and so we, we have to have fees that allow us for, to recover those. Um, but we have tons of fee assistant programs. And if you're interested in coming out and being on programs, but you don't have the resources to pay for a program, um, check out the fee assistance part of our website because there are a ton of opportunities to get out and play. And really, we want you there. At the end of the day, we want everyone to come out and be in our parks. What are the other sources of funding for the Three Rivers? Is it, yeah, is it other state, yeah. state money, I'm assuming? So yeah. Three Rivers is an interesting park district. We exist between the county and the state level. Um, so we used to exist as Hennepin Parks, which was Hennepin County beyond the city boundary of Minneapolis. Um, that name changed in the 1980s or 90s. Um, when we started to reach a little bit beyond Hennepin County, our primary focus is still suburban Hennepin County, and that's where our t main tax base is, which covers about 70% of our operations. Um, then from there, we do have some fees for some of our programs, um, and we also have um, some races that have fees associated with them. Uh, and there's a couple other odds and ends, like we've got some golf operations and downhill ski operations that charge a little bit more because those take more to fulfill. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, we're funded by taxes and then fees to recover our further expenses beyond that. Cool. 
but all of our parks are free to enter. Um, it never costs money to come into our parks. Yeah, and there's some great parks too. Yeah. My wife and I definitely like to get out and enjoy some of them. So. Yeah, the ones most people know of are like Baker, which is out west, um, Elm Creek, which is up north near Maple Grove, Highland, which is down in Bloomington, French Park, which is where my office is, uh, has got some beautiful natural cross-country skiing this time of year, um, and that's where Lake Independence is, which is a huge fishing lake. Uh, it's good muskies in that lake. Yeah, good muskies, but also we've got a new invasive species in that lake, which is pretty concerning. It's the Starry Stonewort. It's oh, the first sure. metro lake to encounter the invasive species. Aren't they and a Great Lakes invasive? They, I'm not certain about that, but they might be. They're, they're coming this way, and it's a real concern. Wow. I'm yeah. sure when they get in the metro lakes, it's going to be hard to contain. Yeah, lake. we've actually, for our programming, uh, stopped putting our canoes, kayaks, and stand-up paddle boards into that lake because we transport our boats between mm. so many lakes that we don't want to be the vector that causes that spread. Um, and we're working a lot with the DNR to do motorboat inspections as boats are coming in and out of the lake. Um, but it's it's a, it's a scary thing to see a new invasive showing up. Yeah. I've seen it in some of the, <clears throat> the boat launches that I've been to that are part of the Three Rivers Park is they have those spray booths and stuff yeah. to, to yeah. knock the weeds and the zebra mussels and stuff off of your your skags and your props and all that. So. Yeah, the DNR is really helping with funding for that. Um, and we've taken to a policy where now we power wash our boats after every single use uh, just to make sure that we're not spreading. It's like saltwater boats. Yeah. You know, you take care of it every time you get off the water. Right, yeah. Uh, why don't we back up a little bit and kind of talk about uh, your non-professional life in the outdoors <laughs> and what do you like to do what do you you know what are your areas of focus when you're not working um, how do you enjoy the outdoors well I like to consider myself a competent generalist um, <laughs> but really uh, where I focus my attention is in paddle sports so uh, canoeing kayaking and within kayaking sea kayaking and whitewater paddling are both passions of mine uh, I recently fell in love with stand-up paddle boarding as well um, so if it paddles I, I'm about it. Um, and then I also really enjoy mountain biking. I've been a pretty active rock climber. I'm uh, still recovering from a bit of a hand injury, which has kind of taken me off of the climbing uh, as aggressively for the last couple of years. But uh, generally, I'm a climber, cyclist, and paddler. Cool. Yeah, those climbing injuries can be pretty brutal. I, I didn't really know about that until I started. And it's like, why is my middle joint hurt on my one finger and yeah. I can't do anything about it. Turns out there's a lot of really tiny ligaments <laughs> and muscles in our hands and it is easy to mess them easy up. Easy to mess them yeah. up, absolutely. So who got you introduced to the outdoors, Grant? We like to talk a lot about like that ripple effect. There's like somebody that kind of throws that pebble in and then it just kind of spreads. I think it's kind, of a, it's, it's kind of a twofold thing for me. Um, this piece of, of me that learned to fall in love with the outdoors and fall in love with the land was my grandpa, and it happened on his farm. Um, and so it was really not recreation-oriented at all. It was about being outside and learning to do things outside. Um, and that was when I was in my like late elementary school phase, um, kind of coming into middle school. And then when I was 13 and 14 years old, I was lucky enough to go on a 10-day and two-week trip into the Boundary Waters with Camp Wigiwagan. Uh, and on those trips, I learned my environmental ethic, my work ethic. I learned the beauty of nature. And, and those experiences, I think, were really where the foundation was. Um, but then it grew from there, and I ended up at a brand-new charter school um, that had just opened up that was really focused on experiential education, and I got to go on a lot of camping trips across the country with that school. Um, later, ended up working at that school, and that's where I met Mike, mm -hmm. um, which was a cool turn of events to be able to return and be the facilitator of those experiences. Um, and that's really what brought me 
to the job that I have now too of, of teaching people how to play in the outdoors is that for me, so much of who I am is rooted in those early experiences and rooted in those trips to the Boundary Waters and spending time on my grandpa's farm that I want to be able to share that kind of learning with other people. And, and like I said earlier, I, as much as I want someone to walk away from a lesson of mine with a skill, I want them to walk away with an understanding about themselves um, and an understanding about the world and, and caring for the place that they just had an experience in so that these places can stay beautiful for generations to come. Sweet. All right, so it's uh, middle to the end of January here. I'm sure you've got a lot of outdoor uh, activities planned, a lot of camps that are full. What is, what's kind of the main focus at the Three Rivers right now? This time of year, we are jamming on cross-country skiing. That is our biggest thing. Three Rivers has a unique set of resources in that we make snow at both Highland and Elm Creek, which are two of our parks. They're the only two of the three parks in the metro that make snow when we don't have natural snow. We're lucky now to be getting some real winter weather and have some real natural snow, and so mm -hmm. we've got cross-tree skiing at tons of our parks, um, but really that's where we put a lot of our energy in the winter months is teaching cross-country skiing, both classic, which is that normal, just moving your skis next to each other, kind of looks like you're walking but faster, um, <laughs> and then skating, which looks a little bit more like ice skating does. It's a little bit faster, more dynamic. Um, People who get into it tend to think that skating's more fun. Myself, I'm more of a classic skier because I just want to be out in the woods. Mm -hmm. um, but we also are ramping up. We've got a lot of um, snowshoe programs that go this time of year. And for me, one of my favorite things about winter is that when we're thinking about the idea of leaving no trace, we want to make sure that whenever we're moving around, we're moving around on durable surfaces. So it means that walking on trails in highly used parks, it means that we're not doing damage to the micro life that lives in our soils um, as we're using these highly frequented places. But in the winter months, everything becomes a durable surface. You coat anything in a foot of snow, you can walk anywhere without doing damage to that space. Mm -hmm. uh, and so suddenly the lakes that you couldn't walk on, you can walk on because they're frozen. The parts of the forest that you can never get to, you can get to and you can go check out those deer trails that are cruising through that normally are not accessible to those of us who are on foot. Um, and so I love snowshoeing in the wintertime because of where I can get with those snowshoes. Um, we also getting deep into ice fishing right now. Uh, ice steps are finally deep enough for us yeah. to be able to safely get groups out there. Um, we step up and above the DNR recommendations of ice depth because we're not one person sitting out on the lake with a bucket, we're 15 or 20 people sitting in a 10 foot circle. Yeah. Uh, and so you start to think about us more as a truck in terms of that ice depth we need um, than just that single person walking. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and then, so for a lot of the like equipment and the, and the users here, you, you talk about the high traffic areas um, and high usage, are most people renting? Are most people bringing their own equipment to ski or to fish or, or do you see you know the large majority renting and getting equipment there i would say the large majority are own their equipment for okay. the most part um, but we do have a robust ski rental program um, we don't have much in the way of rental equipment for fishing in part because people need to have licenses to fish and we aren't licensed authorized license retailers mm -hmm. um, but we do have um, a lot of opportunity to rent cross-country skis to rent snowshoes so those things that are a little bit easier to strap on and go out and go do um, without that further knowledge without some of the safety pieces of knowing to stay away from where water's flowing into a lake so that you're avoiding that thin ice um, we try mm -hmm. to set people up for success success with rentals in not putting them in a place that's going to be too dangerous um, and not having to have that high level of baseline knowledge. Um, plus, from a liability perspective, we need to protect the citizens of Hennepin County and make sure that we're not putting ourselves at too much risk for a lawsuit if we do make a mistake someday. Mm. Do you have any good recommendations of where people could get uh, reasonably priced, like let's say skis? Uh, th that's always one that kind of 
I think I would have an interest in cross-country skiing more, but I don't have a good pair. I have a very, very old pair with boots that are like shoes. Um, <laughs> little le- leather tongue on yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, they're like definitely my dad's that he had when he was 20. Um, so... Yeah, the equipment's changed a little you know, bit since the 1980s. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, but that's, you know, just we've talked about this many times, whether it's fishing or hunting, there's always a, a barrier, a cost barrier there. And I yeah. think skiing can be relatively steep for, sure. for a lot of people. And, you know, you can get out a couple times and rent, but rentals are also kind of, they can be expensive. When you're talking about downhill and whatnot, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of Especially like, if you're doing it multiple times. Right. I always kind of wonder, like, where's the break point there where you need to buy your own and, and where should you be looking? Yeah, my general recommendation for most of the sports that I teach is if it's something you're interested in, first take a lesson, learn the basics because it's so easy to develop bad habits right off the bat. When I started cross-country skiing, I did not take lessons and I developed habits that now years later I'm still fighting. Um, so jumping off the bat with a lesson is huge and with lessons, you're going to get equipment. And so that that is where I always recommend to start. And then from there, I really like renting two, three, maybe even four times in a given year just to get that experience, start to feel out like, is this a thing I really want to invest in? And the reality is for a lot of the equipment, if you're not doing it more than a couple times a year, it doesn't make that much sense to own. I mean, you look at a pair of cross-country skis, you need the skis, the bindings, the boots, and the poles, plus whatever your clothing is. And just the ski package alone, I mean, you can spend... 500 bucks on kind of a base package. You can go up from there. You can get something for as little as 300 if you're looking new, but that would be pretty, you'd, you'd be shopping some nice sales to get that price. Um, and so I really find it's really useful, helpful to rent. And often when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about in the context of kayaking, that's where I do a lot of my yeah. teaching. And the other piece about it is then you learn what equipment you like. You get in a boat yeah. that feels really tippy or feels less tippy or really fits your hips super well or has enough room for your size 14 feet. Getting in those different boats, getting on that different equipment and feeling what feels right. And even if you're buying new equipment, something like a bike, go out and test ride it. Don't buy a bike without test riding it. Like mm-hmm. get Make sure it's something that you like. Uh, and seek out the professionals in that area. Like There's not one like, poof, this is where you go to find your super great deal on skis. Yep. Um, but there are a lot of opportunities to get out there, find yourself at swap meets. Uh, honestly, I've started buying a lot of equipment off Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist in the last few years. Um, I know what I weigh. I know what my shoe size is. I can reach out to someone who's posted a pair of cross-country skis and saying, hey, I weigh this. My shoe size is this. Is that similar to you? Mm-hmm. Um, and for cross-country skis, that weight piece is really relevant, um, much less so for downhill skis. But when we think about a cross-country ski, you can almost imagine a bow with its string on the ground and the limbs of it pointed up. And when you step down on that, you want the center to push down into the ground so that you get that grip on the center of your foot. Mm -hmm. Whereas then once you take your weight off and you're not pushing all your weight on that one ski, you want to have that nice easy glide where that center part of the ski that has good friction with the snow is gliding over nice and easy and not touching. Look at that. I never knew that. Something new. (laughs) (laughs) Something new. That makes total sense. Yeah. And that was the thing that like, until I got into skiing, I had no idea. And I think that that's one of the things I love about your guys' podcast is you're starting to reveal some of those pieces. And Jake, you and I were talking before we started recording about how even for you, you're, this, this is becoming a resource of like, hey, I want to go do this thing. We, yeah. made, we made a show about that. Let's turn back. Let's yeah, look. look back. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really awesome feature of what this podcast is offering. That's so cool about the skis. Yeah. There's just so many things like that. I mean, we could go down a lot of rabbit holes, I'm sure. Hopefully we will someday <laughs> uh, with all your uh, expertise and kayaking. I'll, sh- and I'll share a quick um, I, I, a few years ago, I got a pair of snowshoes and I spent $10 on them 
And what I what I did was I just looked on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. I don't remember, but I just bought the frames, mm. some wood frames. And then I went online and found uh, like the weaving material nice. for the snowshoes. Did and I use real sinew or artificial sinew? Artificial. Nice. Yeah. It was cheaper. Last one too. <laughs> and so I'd I'd actually like spent a couple days weaving a pair of snowshoes and uh, when they're not decorating my wall as nice decor, I use them. Right. And they're awesome. And I didn't I spent maybe fifteen dollars on them and it's a and it's a piece of equipment I take a lot of pride in because I I made them with my own two hands. And I have them to use whenever I want to. Especially when the snow's deep. I actually used them a couple of years ago to go to the grocery store down the street when we, <laughs> when we got a bunch of snow. In St. Paul. Yeah, in St. Paul. It's right down the street. And it was, you know, two feet dumped snow. I'm like, I'm wearing my snowshoes. Just having a reason to use them. And, and I think that brings up a really interesting thing. We often think about the outdoors as this place is really far from your front door, my mm-hmm. front door. But the reality is it's right there. You get two feet of snow, you're going outside. You need to use those skills to figure out how to navigate that space. And so I... Uh, a few years ago when I was working for a nonprofit called Wilderness Inquiry, they are about this idea called urban wilderness. And when I first heard I was like, urban wilderness, what are you talking about? Yes. That can't, how is that a thing? Yeah. Uh, but the reality is it's everywhere. You get down on the Mississippi Gorge here in the Twin Cities, I paddle down there all the time. It is the most beautiful place here in the Twin Cities. It's the only naturally occurring gorge on the Mississippi River. St. Anthony Falls, where we've got the Stone Arch Bridge right now, that waterfall used to exist all the way downtown St. Paul around 10,000 years ago at the time of the last ice age. In the last 10,000 years, the sandstone that exists underneath our limestone on the surface has eroded and eroded and that limestone just keeps falling away. And so over 10,000 years, that waterfall worked its way 5, 10, about 10 miles up the river. Uh, wow. And we, we almost lost that waterfall actually in the late 1800s, early 1900s as industry was chamming up and we were becoming a milling city. Um, and we had folks digging tunnels underneath there to be able to mill above the falls. And one of those tunnels collapsed and we almost lost the entirety of the economic engine that built Minneapolis. Um, but in the, nestled into this cultural history is this beautiful natural history of this gorge being created. And yeah. it's, it's the only gorge on the most predominant river on our continent. Uh, and most people have no idea it's there. They cruise over it on the top of 94 or on the top of Lake Street or Marshall yeah. yep. and never get down onto that river. And for me, that's one of the most beautiful places that we have here in the Twin Cities. I was, I was shocked. I live maybe four blocks from there. And a couple of years ago, my wife and I just went for a walk and we walked... We're on the St. Paul side of the Mississippi River, and we walk to the river, and we just, we're amazed. I mean, you're 60, 75 feet up above the water, and it's just like, just the most beautiful scenery. It's like, I can't believe this is right here. Yeah. You would never know. Because it's forested around the edges. You don't see that there's, you know, the city skyline in the background. It's like you're in the middle of, you can kind of like put yourself right back to what that must have looked like, Mm -hmm. like before you know, like industrialization came. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's a beautiful place. You hit that gorge on a fall day where the sun's out and the maples are popping. It is something else. If you're, if you're listening from the twin cities, I highly recommend you get down to the Mississippi river gorge and it's actually our closest national park. Yep. The Mississippi river way is our right in our backyard national park. Most Mm -hmm. people have no idea. Yep. We, uh, my wife and I a few years back looked at, 
uh, house that was located like within it was on an island down south by like Cottage Grove and it was like I think it was potentially within the national park boundary or like right adjacent to it and we we're like whoa like that'd be really awesome to be able to live that close to that um, but you know no, nothing ever happened. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a fun dream. Though. It's a regret. Yeah, it's, it's a, there's a certain level of regret there, but <laughs> there's a lot of um, I I know of uh, some people that do a lot of canoeing like down Minnehaha Creek. Yeah, like starting where, where does it even start? I don't it starts even know. at Lake Minnetonka. Lake Minnetonka, Minnetonka yeah. and take it all the way to Minnehaha Falls. Yeah. Yeah, get out before the falls, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get that bridge, you went too far. Yeah. I've seen videos of guys going over it. Yeah, yeah a few I mean, years ago, there was a whitewater paddler who did it, uh, and he broke his nose going over, and he was definitely a very professional paddler. Yeah. Um, but he, he made it happen. Yeah. Don't try to home, Don't do though. that. Was he a kayaker? <laughs> he was a kayaker, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. GoPro videos of it on YouTube and stuff, but it's, yeah, I wouldn't... Yeah, we're not going to we're going to do a podcast on how to prepare for doing something like <laughs> no, that. No, no, I'm a whitewater paddler. You'll never see me go over with Minneapolis Falls. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah, Minneapolis uh, really has just an absolutely great uh, park system, whether it's down at, you know, the Mississippi or just any little city park. Um, I've got probably, I don't know how many, four or five right within a half-mile radius of my house. Um, so there really is, like you said, with urban... Uh, they're urban outdoors. Uh, there's really no excuse, you know. I mean, it, certainly it's not like uh, going up to the North Shore or some of the other grand places that we have in the state of Minnesota. But just to get out, play some kickball, uh, run your dog, like just get that little bit of uh, that outside time is mm-hmm. really helpful. And we're, we're really lucky to live in a city in a metropolitan area that really valued that when we set everything up and... Uh, we have people like you working on behalf of us to like keep these, keep uh, these places um, in the forefront and well funded and um, keeping people outside. Well, and it's really everyone who lives here who keeps it funded. Mm-hmm. It's our taxes that pay for these parklands, and and I'm so grateful, like you're saying, Jake, to live in a place that has these resources available to us. The fact that most of us in the city can walk out our door and within 15 minutes be at some level of parkland mm-hmm. is amazing. Mm-hmm. There are so many places where people just don't have that. I mean, Europe has so few parks. It was not a part of the urban development in um, in Europe. Even in our own country on the East Coast, there's so much less park space because cities grew before land was set aside for parks. So thank you to those who built our city and left room for parks to exist in this space. Yeah. And then what is your... Do you have outreach programs? So, like, do you have people that go maybe travel into, like, more urban schools and, you know, advertise for your your different programs and get some some different people introduced and exposed to different activities that they've maybe never seen or tried before we do and we've got a pretty robust um, community engagement team um, who reaches out and does a lot of work with new groups Um, we really focus on we recognize who uses parks it's mostly affluent white people who have had past experiences in parks we want to make sure that the parks that do belong to everyone are getting used by everyone and so we're really working hard to make sure that we're reaching people who have not otherwise had access to these spaces Um, and so sometimes that looks like bringing a program to a school that can't get to us we have a serious busing problem across this country right now Um, and so getting a school who's already feeling tight financially even with our financial assistance to be able to pull their leverage to get a bus to bring them out to our parks 
sometimes that doesn't happen and so we will take our programs to school sometimes um, it's always interesting when you bring a, a set of archery equipment into a school's backyard <laughs> um, but, yeah. but it's also really fun when a kid gets to throw on a pair of cross-country skis right outside of their school building and get that first opportunity that first touch and for them in that moment it's much more focused on that skill development but it's also realizing whoa that six inches of snow we got last night that wasn't quite enough for a snow day today it's still super fun and 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 that was the thing that i was really excited to talk about people with early this year was when we got that early snow like oh yeah snow is fun it's not a thing that has to be a chore like yeah we gotta get our sidewalks and our roads clean and we gotta you know there's there's things we gotta do Mm -hmm. but there's so much room to play um and we we really want to bring that play to as many people as we can can you walk me through the energy level uh, spikes and, you know, like, I just imagine when you're pulling up to a school with a bus full of equipment, there's just got to be chaos. <laughs> <laughs> like, people, like, the kids just have to be so excited and, like, I don't know what that says. Like, if they're just desperate to get outside and release that energy, if they're cooped up, but I just, I don't know, tell yeah. me about Or the, is it the opposite? Or, is it the or yeah. maybe they're like, oh, God. Uh, we gotta go. Yeah, you know. I'll flip it a little bit and I'll tell yeah. you about when their bus comes to our park because that's what we do sure. more often. Sure. Um, and it's it's a pretty exciting moment. It's really one of the parts about that experience that can really gauge how the day is going to be for me is standing right next to that bus as those kids come off. Um, every time we get a large school group, we're gonna gather them all up in one spot so we can kind of talk about our norms for the day. We can set some expectations. We can help people understand what they're going to do. Because one of the scariest things about coming and playing in the outdoors for the first time is not knowing, like, what's my progression? Kids who are used to having a schedule, used to having a set routine, are not necessarily getting that when they come in the outdoors. And so we really want to build that up for them. And so you get this group of kids, and it's 100 kids standing around, and they're all middle schoolers, and they have a hard time controlling their bodies anyways. But all of a sudden, (laughs) they're off the bus. They're excited. They're like, what's going to happen here? And there's totally this, like, You've got some kids who are so excited that they're going to go cross-country skiing today. And then you've got other kids who are like, dude, no way. Like, I don't even want to put those skis on. And for me, the kid who's really exciting is the kid who doesn't want to put those skis on. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions I ask in those intros every time is, who's done whatever activity is before? Can get some hands up. And usually it's, you know, 20, 30, 40% of the group has tried that activity. And then I think equally important is who hasn't done this activity before? And what I tell those kids every single time is that first times are my favorite thing. Because in that first time experience, not only are you learning that activity, but you're learning about yourself. You're trying something totally new. And what I love, love, love about working with school groups in the outdoors is you get a kid who has a really hard time at school. And they show up and their teacher says, Johnny's going to be hard for you. Johnny crushes it in the outdoors because Johnny's got strengths. Johnny's super smart. Johnny's driven. Johnny just is not good at sitting still in the classroom. And that is not where he's going to be able to operate at his highest ability. He's going to show up and do some awesome stuff in the outdoors. Same with Susan and Sarah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. I remember we had, in the past, we we had a student. I think this was a year that you were teaching as well, Grant. Um, Grant and I were in the same classroom together. and there, We had a student that was getting in trouble a lot. And they eventually um, elected to send him to like a wilderness area. And I was uh, shocked by the change in the student when he came back. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a student that was like pretty aggressive and was like push people, push teachers, really wouldn't take to any sort of like redirection and uh, was, you know, yelling a lot. And he came back and I like looked me right in the eye, shook my hand and I was like, how was it? He was like, it was great. You know, I got to collect firewood, 
learned how to build a fire. We camped. And I just was, it was such an amazing transition to see in somebody, especially being like, just seeing the before and after, yeah. not the process. Right. You can really see that stark contrast between, you know, what, who they used to be and who they are now and the changes they've made. Right. It was amazing. And it was all because of just like working and being in nature and learning how to just like be okay with silence and to enjoy being around people and having a role to play and all these different things that are you learn as skills when you're in the outdoors. Yeah. And I think like it's easy to see those huge transformations when we look at programs like wilderness therapy, where it is true therapy that people are experiencing in the outdoors. And I think like you have to learn how to fend for yourself. You have to learn how to take care of yourself. Often those programs will have a period where uh, if a kid is in a safe enough position, they might have some solo time in the outdoors. Whereas this kid is never allowed to be alone mm -hmm. in the front country because of what, what concern they might do. Right. Um, and that alone, that kind of power is really powerful, but it doesn't have to be as dramatic as that. It yeah. can be, I had a group, we were doing team building, not really an outdoor skill, not really something where you have to learn something to do. And I made the mistake of asking an introductory question of what's your favorite thing to do in school. Not where I like to go with my programs, but it was, I was not feeling particularly creative that day. And one of the girls in my group, she said, I like to get in trouble. It's my favorite thing to do in school. And as a facilitator, that was like a little red flag to me. But mm -hmm. it was also a little other flag. I don't know what color that one would be of like, here's an opportunity. Yeah. And this young woman, she was probably 14, maybe 15 years old it was very clear that her self-identity was wrapped up in being a troublemaker. That was how adults had viewed her her whole life. It was what she had come to see herself as. And throughout the course of the day, I watched as her peers repeatedly turned to her to figure out how do we solve these challenges yeah. that we're trying to overcome as a group? What do we do in this space? How do we make this happen? Mm -hmm. And in the most gentle and uh, without making her feel awkward about it way, because she's a high school teenager who's already having, feels like authority is a thing that she must challenge at every turn. Mm -hmm. told her at the end of the day what I saw and helping her realize that her peers look up to her and that she's a leader amongst her peers for her. I mean, I, we never talked after that moment. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you exactly how that impacted her, but the look that she had in her eyes as we had that conversation and the way that her body posture changed told me that she saw herself in entirely new ways. And it was just from spending an afternoon outside. It wasn't doing any particular activity. It was just about being in a new environment. And that to me is the real beauty of the outdoors is we can see ourselves and become entirely new things from what we've known before. That's so cool. It, it really like, in those moments, I think things are stripped away and there's a truth to it. It's like, you know, we're here to do this or not. Right. Like, and especially that solo time that you mentioned, it's like, well, the trees don't care if you do or don't do a thing. You'll just decide if you want to do something. Right. Um, and that's like that level of freedom, but also there, like there's an extreme level of freedom in that, but then there's also like uh, some requirements to like take action. Like right. you have to, eventually you have to do something, take that first step. And that is just like snowballs upon itself and leads to different levels of empowerment. Totally. Uh, and then when you add peers who look up to you and all that, I mean, it's a pretty powerful space. Absolutely. I mean, I even think about how, listening to you guys talk about sitting in your deer stands or sitting in your blinds. You could sit there and be miserable as it snows or rains and you're waiting for that deer to come or you're waiting on that turkey to show up. Mm -hmm. And 
you're choosing to not be miserable. You're choosing to make that experience what it is for yourself. And in that process, you are building something for yourself that you can turn back on at any other time. Mm-hmm. Last, and, you, and you often are miserable. Right. Really. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not necessarily convincing myself that I'm having the best time every single time, but I know that the choice is, well, I'm, I chose to only give it an hour today right. and I went in. Right. And I didn't get a deer or I didn't get, I didn't accomplish any goals that I had or whatever. It's like, well, that's your choice. Right. You could stay out and, and, you know, try to get warm, focus on something else, meditate, focus on different things, stay strong in a mental capacity and maybe something else will happen. But if you're not around, if you're not present for it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, well, and there's something that like got to show push, up pushing yourself too, like mm-hmm. showing up and pushing yourself. I last Friday when we got our little blizzard here in town, um, I wound up riding my fat bike to a friend's place. It's about eight miles from my house. So about 16 miles round trip, really slow riding. Wow. <laughs> like not that many miles in the grand scheme of things. Like mm-hmm. I can ride 16 miles, no problem in the summer months. But when I'm riding on almost five inch wide tires that have three pounds of pressure in them, it's a lot of rubber to push over <laughs> yeah, for a long no time. Kidding. Uh, and I was at my friend's house and a couple people offered me rides home and I was like, no, I, I want to do this. And I got two thirds of the way home and realized how much I had bit off for myself and how challenging that ride was. And, and it was truly miserable in the moment. I was not enjoying myself as I climbed up my umpteenth hill and just ground and ground and <laughs> was in my easiest gear for a half hour on end. Uh, but I think that there's a real beauty to hitting those places where you're like, I can't do this anymore. I am at my edge and then figuring out where that little bit extra is. And for me in some of my personal recreation, if I'm on a river, like I have to keep going. It, there, there's not an option to stop in the middle of a rapid that like, yeah, I might be able to catch an eddy, which is a place where the water's circulating in an upstream direction and take a little break, but I'm not going to be able to take a like stop. I'm yeah. not done. Like this last year I threw paddled four days on the green river in Colorado and Utah. We were in a canyon for most of that. There's no getting out. Like the closest road yep. is 20 miles away. It's going to be a lot worse to walk out than paddle out. And so when I've got the opportunities to push myself in those ways when I'm three miles from home, I'm going to take them because then when I really need it and I have to dig deep, I know it's there. The most extreme example I can think of that is the free solo documentary. Yeah. Like, oh, you're here. Like you're stuck. Like, right. <laughs> the only way is through. Yeah. Like you just, you got to keep moving. Yeah. Uh, not that everything has to be anywhere near remotely as extreme <laughs> as that, but like yeah, Alex Honnold is one of his own, yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, there are those places that that choice is kind of taken out of your hands and you just have to proceed. You have to keep going. And I think that that's like super valuable. I think people could use that a lot more. Yeah. It's nice to know that like nobody's going to bail you out. Right. You kind of like become self-reliant. Like, I got myself into this. I'm gonna get myself out. Nobody's here to like pick me up in a bus when I, you know, I'm not gonna get on the bus when I'm three quarters of the way home when I chose to bike right through the snow. Right. You know, it's that that kind of fortitude to just stick with it, see the challenge through, and you feel so much better about yourself when you've done something like that versus if you made up your mind to try something and then you backed out. You're probably less likely to try it again. And that's one of the things that we talk about in this podcast quite often is that it could be a real challenge for people to try a new hobby in the outdoors when they don't have someone there to guide them right. through it. Because as soon as you like go out on that limb and you feel a little bit unstable, you're going to go right back to where you are comfortable. Right. I mean, I, I was just talking the other night with a friend of mine about how sometimes when I'm rock climbing, 
I'll have these moments where like my brain just stops working. I'm so focused on what I'm doing or I get so perplexed by the fear of a situation that didn't change at all from two minutes ago, but all of a sudden my mentality changed and I'm reliant upon my partners to get me out of that situation. I've, I've had a talk through with my best friend exactly how to set up an anchor while he was on the top of the cliff and I was on the bottom of the cliff because he was like, I know how to do this, but my brain's not letting me do it right now. And so having those resources for that backup and like knowing that like, yeah, I totally could have hopped on the bus. Like I knew that that was an option. I knew where the bus route was. Like have those emergency exit plans. Don't hurt yourself in the yeah. process of it. But like push, see where that limit is. See if you can get a little bit further, but also know like, Ooh, my gut is saying like, it's time to go home. Listen to your gut. I've had times where my gut has kept me out of some really hairy situations under no particular logic. I like tried to apply logic to it. Didn't work, but I've been paddling Lake Superior as a sea kayak guide. Had a moment where I was like, all right, everybody, we're turning around right now. And my participants were upset with me. They didn't know why we went, why I was turning them around, but for something, something told me it's time to go back now. And we got to shore and within 20 minutes, the lake had built from two foot waves to four foot waves. And that's a wave that like, yeah, I can handle when I'm out in my boat, but my participants who are brand new kayakers, that's not a safe place to have them. And so listen mm-hmm. to that gut, trust yourself, mm-hmm. trust the people you're with who know what's going on. And having those, those allies, like you guys talk about so frequently that can get you into that space and help teach you those pieces. It's so huge. Yeah, not everything has to be, I think that this, this point could be characterized as like putting yourself in sketchy places or really pushing the limits that, that that's not necessarily, I don't think what we mean. There's this value in whatever that means to you for sure. Uh, that could be going a couple extra blocks on your walk with your dog, like just spending a little more time out there doing something longer, like as, mm-hmm. as minimal as that versus like the Alex, Alex Honnold situation right. where it's like, well, yeah, you're stuck. You're, you've got to get out of it. Like everything in between there's value in and, and just be safe and right. Well, we often in the outdoor education world, we think about this, these three concentric circles. So imagine, imagine your target, the center circle is your comfort zone. That's all the things that are really easy for you to do. You do them all the time. So for some of us that's sitting at home watching TV for you, Mike, that's going out and doing, being on your fishing boat and knowing exactly which lure to use for the place you're in. For other Mm -hmm. people, it's a whole different set of things. Outside that comfort zone is our stretch zone. And that stretch zone is where things get a little challenging. We get that little ping in our belly that goes, I don't know about this. I'm not sure this feels exactly right, but it's also kind of exciting. And it's where that like nervousness, excitement are all mixed up in the same thing. And then the outside circle, which you can imagine extending forever into the distance, that's our panic zone. And that panic zone can be like low level panic of like, ooh, I can't quite think straight anymore like my friend up on the climbing wall. Or it can be to the point of like, I'm having a full-on breakdown and panic attack and I can't breathe anymore. Mm-hmm. And what I shoot to facilitate to and shoot to push myself into is that stretch zone because that's where we grow. That's where we learn. It's where we become bigger and fuller versions of ourselves. And I think that is such a beautiful place to exist. Do you teach anything or have any recommendations to how to get back into, let's say, back into that stretch zone? Like if you find yourself in a position where you're out of... Yeah. You're out of your comfort zone and you go, oh no, I've, I've gone in too deep here. I'm starting to kind of freak out. What are some tools people can have to kind of rein things in uh, and get back to a place where they can dig their way out of that hole? So one of my favorite ways to think about this is, is if we laid this target out on the ground, we made it 30 feet across, we had 30 people who were here and I read a statement out loud that said, I'm comfortable going hunting on public land. I would be standing in the panic zone. That's not my place. 
but you guys would be standing in much more so the comfort zone or the stretch zone, depending on your relative experience, what you're hunting for. I didn't even know before I started listening to your podcast that someone who hunts deer doesn't know how to hunt turkey. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I yeah. can reach out to you and you can reach out to me. And that, I think, is the best thing to pull yourself back from the panic zone into the stretch zone or from the stretch zone back into the comfort zone when you need that breath, is to have those people who are in other places and recognize that that diversity and strength and diversity and experiences is what allows us all to succeed and then beyond that sometimes it's just taking a moment like in wilderness medicine i'm a wilderness first responder which basically means i can do stuff between the paramedic and emt level in a backcountry setting we have a saying that slow is smooth and smooth is fast really counterintuitive that slow is fast but if you think about it and break it down that to be smooth you have to be slow and to be fast, you have to be effective. Mm -hmm. It really makes things make a lot more sense. When I'm approaching an emergency, before I ever touch a patient, I'm stopping, I'm putting my gloves on, I'm making sure the scene is safe for myself, for the public, I'm making sure that that person's safe. If I'm in a backcountry setting and a person's in a place where it's not safe for them to be, even if I'm concerned about a spinal cord injury, I'm gonna move them before I assess that injury. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm standing underneath a rock fall and I'm just waiting for that rock fall to come down on me, come down on them, I'm not doing anyone a service by stabilizing their spine underneath that. Mm -hmm. Same as a burning car. You get someone out of a burning car. Like I'm not worried about if you broke your neck if you're in a burning car. I'm worried about you not being in a burning car. Mm -hmm. You can live a beautiful, amazing life with an injury. You cannot live a life if you die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, some people may have religions and thoughts that go for it. I think that's our episode title. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Oh, that's great. That's really good uh, advice. And I think those are some really poignant things for people to think about in, in the specific moments, but then also just generally um, and how to stretch themselves and get back to comfort levels. And that's a cool thought. Well, and I think too, like you can think about it from the lens of fitness. Like if, if you've done any sort of workout in the gym, there are reps that you do and you feel that burn, you feel that rip, but you also know when like you just picked up a weight that was too hard. Don't pick up that weight that's too hard. Pick up the thing that feels approachable. Do more reps of easier stuff. And for me, that's why I do half the outdoor sports I do. It's not, I, I have such a hard time going to the gym. I want to use my body in the outdoors. And that for me is the the outdoors is my gym. I play outside all the time and it's what keeps me fit, keeps me healthy physically, emotionally, mentally. I wouldn't be half the person I am if I didn't have the outdoor playgrounds that I get to play in. I love that. Yeah, I think I realized that a little bit this year that I could use the outdoors to stay fit more than I had in the past. I mean, I'm a runner, so I, I do run outside a lot, but uh, in different ways, just hiking through tall grass and dragging deer out and um, hiking up mountains. And yeah, there's so many opportunities swimming. Yeah. Um, like you said, paddling, those sorts of things. There's, there's, that's quite a workout to paddle across a couple lakes on a, in a canoe. For sure. Um, and if, you know, just, if you don't have the skills just to kind of get that, that baseline fitness is really important. Right. And that's where too, like the whole idea of taking a lesson comes back because if you go paddle across a couple lakes and all you're using is your arms to paddle, you're gonna be tired by the time you get halfway across that first mm -hmm. lake. But if you come take a lesson and you learn, Ooh, I need to rotate my entire core. And the main part of my paddle stroke is really coming from my obliques, those side ab muscles then all of a sudden you can extend that range so far because those mm -hmm. muscles are so much bigger. Even if you got big biceps, your abdominal muscles, they support your entire being. They, mm -hmm. They're there to keep you strong and keep you fit. Um, and so 
by using good form, you can turn all these outdoor activities into amazing workouts. I'm sure setting up a tree stand or hauling anything in is, is hard work. Yeah. I saw somewhere uh, somebody posted, like, you never know how how poor a shape you're in until you try to drag a deer out of the woods by yourself. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's that. happened to me in the past. <laughs> you know, and I think we also talked about, like, that, that zone of panic or the... Um, what was the middle zone called again? Stretch zone. The stretch zone. I think you can expand that stretch zone. For me, I was I was thinking a lot about like, yeah, your fitness. Like you can get yourself into a situation where you're just like, I'm just so tired, I cannot push this any further. Right. And if you enter that space, like a little bit more prepared, you've now expanded that a little bit. Where you can like, I'm thinking like, if I if I went right now and I was like, I'm gonna go elk hunting in the back country, there'd probably be a ton of situations I get myself into that I'm like. One, putting myself in danger because I'm not in good, sh- good enough shape to get myself out. Or I'm just not going to try to get myself into a place to have success because maybe like the, the elk is down there. But I'm, I'm not in good enough shape to get there. Right. Let alone get that elk out after. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and also like and the preparation and like all that stuff that goes into it is everything for meeting those growth circles. There are so many linkages between different outdoor pursuits that like will give you insight into the next thing. So it's that it will expand that stretch zone to, as well. So it's like, oh. yeah, you know, we've talked about, yeah, the turkey hunting reference. Like, why can't a tur- uh, deer hunter hunt turkey? Well, there's some truth to that, but then there's a lot of things that, like, let's say Mike or I could draw on from our past experience from deer hunting that would also apply to turkey hunting. Right. And when you start to uh, build up your little uh, cache of like outdoor knowledge and just experiences that stretch zone does get bigger yeah. because it's like well I don't really know but I'm comfortable taking a step in uh, to that space because I know the risks I know what is likely to happen right. and I know kind of how to solve some of the problems I might run into because I've, I've done seen. it in other places mm-hmm. I, I had a really cool tangible example of that this past weekend I am not a downhill skier Uh, But I did a bunch of downhill skiing this weekend, and it was super fun. And what I realized was that because of my mountain biking, where I've learned how to pick lines and I've learned how to adjust my weight before a turn, I was really comfortable in choosing my lines. And because I do a lot of whitewater paddling, where using your edge and having edge control is really important, I was able to translate mountain biking and whitewater paddling into skiing in a way where, as a realistically pretty beginner skier, I was skiing powdery forest lines all day long on Sunday. And like... That's not something that I should be able to just jump right into, but because I have those other experiences, I was able to combine them into that brand new activity for me. I also had a friend who was a former ski instructor. <laughs> <I was skiing laughs> <with. laughs> That's great. Cool. Well, uh, I think we got a lot. I don't know, Mike. Do you have any other thoughts uh, with Grant here? No, I just, kind of I just, things? you know, thinking about all the things we've talked about, and it, it's just such a cool. I'm, I'm hoping for people that are listening that we. I think Grant has done a really good job of talking about like what the outdoors brings to people. You know, you put yourself in that environment and it's hard to understand the growth and the, and the skills and all these things that are happening to you in that moment until like afterwards. And it's like, it's very much reflective for me. It is anyways. And those things can come to you in all sorts of different aspects in the outdoors. I mean, you climbing, kayaking, canoeing, boundary waters, trips, it could be deer hunting in a deer stand or elk hunting out in Idaho. There's there's so many different ways to get into the outdoors and to find those areas of growth and to have these experiences that we're all really 
in pursuit of the same thing. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you come on, Grant, is because your field of expertise is so much different than mine, but our philosophies on it all is is the same. Yeah. Well, and I remember when we started talking, talking to each other between classes in the classroom we used to work in, I learned so much about hunting and fishing and that you really did view the outdoors the same way I did, just in those little conversations. And that was really cool. And, and for me, there's so many flavors. There's so many flavors of what you can do outdoors. Uh, you, can, you can play here, you can play there. And if you go try to hunt or you try to paddle or you try to do whatever the thing is and it's not the right one for you, try something else. Like I said, I teach 35 different curriculums in the course of a year, and I don't even hunt. <laughs> like, right. And you, yep. it's amazing what you yeah. can do outdoors. Yeah. Yeah, there really is pretty endless, and and I think it's also like if we ha- if it hasn't been clear in our previous uh, you know 20 minutes, I think that like the pushing yourself, the finding new things is really important, but also like a lot of what we do in the outdoors isn't that. Yeah, just finding actual peace and finding those moments where, you know, I push myself in my office job a lot in my in my day to day work um, and in some of my relationships and things. There's a lot of commitments and just hustle and bustle. And it's like, well, sometimes just going out into the outdoors is like that reset button. And that's equally valuable than any sort of uh, sort of deep work on your who you are as a person and, and pushing yourself. It's like that's equally important for sure for yeah. me yeah I, I can find as much joy as hanging out in my hammock looking at the water flow by as i can getting rad on a mountain bike trail mm-hmm. uh, it just depends on where my energy is at in a given day as to what activity i choose yeah cool well do you have anything uh, that you're looking forward to in the next couple of weeks with the the park system that you uh, want to tell people about or just anything that you're you're interested in specifically uh, well, I'm actually, I'm going to slant it onto a personal one. I'm okay. super excited Perfect. for a uh, winter Boundary Waters trip that I get to do with three of my closest friends uh, this coming February. We go up, we do five nights, uh, use a hot tent, so we're able to get things warm in the evenings and the morning. Uh, despite the name, it still gets cold overnight. <laughs> uh, but it is a pretty amazing experience, and this is now my fourth or fifth year doing this trip with these same guys. Um, so I'm really excited to return to that. And that's something that, like, the first year I got invited on that trip, that was full-scale panic zone. I said no the first time I was asked to go on that trip. Uh, and then through a little bit of combination of encouragement and pressuring, I found myself on it. Uh, and now years later, I can't imagine what my winters would be like without it. But at work, it's a super exciting time to be getting out and skiing. Um, I really, the fact that we've got natural snow and we've got so many trails open right now, that for me is what I'm most excited about at Three Rivers is to be getting out and doing a lot more cross-country skiing this winter because um, it's just beautiful. There's nothing like being out on a snowy day in the sun gliding along. Yeah. Well, I'd like to have you back on and there's so many different things that like we could talk about. <laughs> I mean, we kind of got into some of it. I'd like to hear about this trip to the Boundary Waters. Jake and I have been, we were talking about doing a, a couple's trip up to the area and Nice. And maybe like doing some snowshoeing and small game hunting and yeah. kind of like putting all that stuff together would be really cool to get uh, your your knowledge and your For tips sure. and maybe some of the different areas where you've put in and entered and, and things like that. So, and uh, we could we could go off and talk about there's like tribalism things. There's so many different things. So yeah. let's let's yeah. try to get some more episodes on the. I think conveniently we live in a place with four to. seasons where uh, we've got four <laughs> yeah. seasons of activity. Yeah. So we we got lots more to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Well, 
again, for anybody that wants to find out more about what Grant does and the Three Rivers Park system generally, just go to threeriversparks.org. Um, there's programming on there. There's newsletters. Looks like all sorts of things on there. Yeah, so. and if you've got questions that you can't find on the website, just give our general helpline a call, and the folks on the other end of the phone are awesome. I, I can attest to that personally. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sweet. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Grant, for being on, uh, on our episode, and we'll hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Grant. <laughs>